0: Hi, you're listening to Eric Avari, and I hope you remember me from Enterprise, Deep Space Nine, and Next Generation. And you are listening to Trek Untold.
1: Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. I'm still taking my hiatus to prepare for season three of Trek Untold, which is rapidly approaching sooner and sooner. But in the meantime, I'm replaying some classic episodes of this podcast to present some of my favorites that haven't had a lot of listeners check them out before. This week, it's my chat with Eric Avari, which happened all the way back in October 2020 for episode 25 of this series. Eric Avari appeared three times in the Star Trek universe, first in the TNG episode Unification Part 1 as a Klingon, then as the Bajoran Vedic Yarka in DS9's Destiny, and finally in the Enterprise episode from the very first season, Terra Nova. But of course, Eric's career spans far past Star Trek, and you may remember him from roles in Stargate, The Mummy, Planet of the Apes, Mr. Deeds, and plenty more in his over 150 TV and film credits. Back when I first recorded this, I can't deny that I was starstruck talking to Eric, and I still am. It will never not feel surreal when I look back on my guest list for this show, and as much as I relish having spent time with Jonathan Frakes or Gates McFadden or Nana Visitor, I get just as many goosebumps when I think about my conversation with Eric Avari. And honestly, it's kind of the same way with just about any guest I talk to, because really, most of the guests I talk to are folks who I admire and who I'd love to really sit down and talk to, and I feel like that feeling is mutual for you guys out there listening or watching the show, too. Of course, I can't speak for every single audience member out there, and I can't ask all the questions that each and every one of you want to maybe hear. But I try my best to kind of balance fanboy as well as being an interviewer to present a really complete story of whoever my guest is. But I never take it for granted that I'm being given some huge opportunities here to talk to folks. and I really treat everybody with just about that same level of reverence. And character actors like Eric Avari truly deserve that reverence because they are the backbone of Hollywood. And that's something I used to say a lot in this show back in the early days. In fact, I bet if you checked out that original version of this uh, from October 2020, you'd probably hear me say those exact same words, that he is the backbone of Hollywood. And it's very much true. Because it's actors like Eric who help elevate a film to heights where it needs to be. A star of a movie or a show is only as big as the cast around that person who helps to lift them up. And it takes a lot of talent to be able to do that, and that's something we should never ever take for granted. So that's why today I am very happy to present with you this replay of my interview with Mr. Eric Avari. I hope you enjoy this and learn just as much as I did about this one-of-a-kind human being. But before we get started with the show, I want to remind you to check out the Trek Untold Patreon page at patreon.com slash trekuntold. It's the best way to stay up to date on what's happening with the show, as well as to have early access to new episodes, the chance to ask questions to upcoming guests, and much more. And when I say that, I mean that I'm also working on how to make this Patreon experience better for everyone. So now is definitely a good time to jump on board and become a member of the Trek Untold family. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Shout out, of course, as always, to show-sponsored Triple Fiction Productions, who have been with us since Episode 1 and are still here with us after Episode 100, whose 3D-printed, Star Trek-inspired merchandise you're going to learn more about later on in this show along with a few other Trek-related folks who I would love for you to support. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, access interview file.
2: Affirmative. Initiating program.
1: Welcome back to Trek Untold, and now join me on the other side of the line. We've got a face you've seen in 150 different shows and movies. Three of which happen to be Star Trek, but you may also recognize him from The Mummy, Stargate, Mr. Deeds, Days of Our Lives, Dragnet, and so many more, and a bunch of which we're going to talk about today. He's also a fellow lactose intolerant, but lucky for us in Star Trek times, the milk doesn't come from cows anyway. That man is Mr. Eric Avari. Eric, how are you today?
0: Good morning, Matthew. I'm doing excellently well. Thank you. How about yourself?
1: I'm doing great. It's so great to be able to talk to you. Uh, You know, I've seen your face in so many things. Again, it's like getting to do this show. I get to talk to all these folks whose face I've seen, but you don't really get to hear much from. So I'm really excited to hear all about your stories and get some great insight from you on what you do.
0: Looking forward to it.
1: So I'd like to start with the first question I ask all my guests here, and uh, that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek?
0: (laughs) You know, um, when I first came to America... I was uh, I was going to college in the co- at the College of Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, I had a work study program and all that stuff, and and uh, I had a pretty heavy workload. spite <laughs> uh, of carrying, uh, I think it was eighteen credits. Anyway, um, my my jobs varied from you know cleaning out. Student center, garbage cans, and things like that, the toilets and whatever. Uh, And also the desk, which was great for getting my work done. But every day, every weekday, at three o'clock, they put me in the audiovisual room, (laughs) which is basically a bunch of, you know, uh, headphones, and you could listen to music or watch TV. And three o'clock was when Star Trek came on. So every day I would come in and watch Star Trek religiously while I sat there. And it was the (laughs) best part of my day. (laughs) So that's my earliest memory of Star Trek, really.
1: That's a great memory to have. Now, you were born in Darjeeling, India, and your family actually has uh, a lineage in cinema. So I'd love if you could tell us uh, a little bit about your family, who they were growing up as a kid in India, and what young Eric wanted to be back then when he grew up.
0: Well, um, starting with, actually, it was uh, on both side, both my my mother's side of the family. They were the long established uh, filmmakers, uh, theater um, producers. In fact, my great grandfather was the first to put Indian, uh, to put women on uh, the Indian stage. Oh, wow. Uh, prior to that, it was all, you know, like in Shakespeare's time, they were all pants young boys played those roles. Uh, But he, he, uh, um, so that's, I was, and I didn't learn that till much later, actually. I was in New York and I was uh, at the uh, browsing through doing some research in the library and uh, Lincoln Center Library, which is such a beautiful place. Uh, I spent hours and hours there. So, and and I happened to come across a a book on Bengali uh, theater in Bengal. And uh this sort of leafed through it and there was my uh, great grandfather. Um so that was quite revealing. Um and and then and then also on my father's side, my uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, he was a self made man, um started left home at sixteen, uh rode across india apparently so legend has it on horseback <laughs> uh um i'm sure he took advantage of trains quite a bit anyway he um he started movie theaters as well so it was you know movies were in my blood uh, at a very early age and wednesdays and saturdays we were allowed to go um those were also coincidentally the most the days that I was most popular in, at school, because everyone wanted a free ticket.
3: You know? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, if you've ever seen Cinema Paradiso, that is the story of Darjeeling and the movie theaters in Darjeeling. I mean, the whole town gravitated toward the... There were two cinema halls, and my grandfather owned both of them, sadly. Um, and uh, it, it was, you know, the the, the the meeting place of the town, and and it was everyone looked forward to the change in the film, and it was um, uh, a a grand old time that is now sadly gone with the advent of uh, videos, and uh, now of course you know DVDs and computers and everything else. Um, but the, the old fashioned movie theater experience seems to have, seems to have gone by the wayside. So You know, I always I knew what I what I was not good at, which was math and you know science. That that just didn't appeal to me. But um, I I did very much enjoy literature, um, history, and the whole you know stories and characters. And I started to really gravitate towards the humanities. Uh, But I thought I would would love to have been an actor, but growing up in in India, wanting to be uh, an English-speaking actor and doing Shakespeare, there was no career there at all. Um, I didn't have any role models to emulate or anything like that. And I also, at that idealistic age, felt that acting was something way too frivolous. And I needed to put my efforts um, into something that's that was more meaningful. And anyway, so I, you know, sort of thought about becoming a criminal lawyer or you know joining the foreign service and becoming a diplomat or whatever. And it, I was in ninth grade. Uh, Father Maguire was going on about something that um, was daydreaming, and uh, and all of a sudden he said something that caught my attention, and he said artists, and he was talking about painters, um, poets, um, uh, actors, so on. Um, Artists traditionally hold up a mirror to society and typically, when they have failed to do that, that society has crumbled. Mm. And he went on to, to you know, to elucidate that point with the Greeks and the Romans, and you know, and on and on and on. And we see the correlation between uh, art and its culture and its heritage, and 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 how it it plays in today's. Society and what's is it the, the um, dog wagging the tail? You know, uh, does life imitate art? Does art imitate life? If all these questions started to to come up, and and uh, I started to see a real value to wanting to become an actor. And at that point, I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it but that is what I want to do. So I, I, it was a, a pretty seminal moment of my life.
1: Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty huge uh, epiphany moment, I guess you'd say. Mm-hmm. So when did your family come to America?
0: Um, no, um, my uh, I came to America. Okay, you just came by yourself.
1: Okay. Yeah,
0: yep. I came on a, a, a scholarship. yeah I was a literature major in, uh, in India. I got my BA there. Uh, it was... Basically, marking time and that bank- thing, it was very, very difficult in those days for us from India to come out to the U.S. because we uh, our foreign exchange, well, we just didn't have it. You know, India was a burgeoning country and just didn't have the foreign exchange. And uh, they said, you know, you're welcome to go, but <laughs> the Indian rupee is valueless uh, outside of India. So good luck. <laughs> you know? and what a lot of people did was you know they were under, you know you bought dollars in the black market and all of that stuff but um my dad uh with his british army background was not having any of that so uh you know i didn't even you know, broach the subject i knew where, where that would go in a hurry so i just had to wait for something to happen i wasn't sure how or what but um You know, uh, a chance meeting uh, um, and uh, in following up on it, uh, I must say my uh, educators were extremely supportive. You know, they went out of their way to plead my case. And um, and being Jesuits, I guess they had a way of, you know, really making that point. So, uh, here I am.
1: so you came to New York City, right, and uh, from there you got into eventually...
0: no, to South Carolina first.
1: Oh, you went to South Carolina first, okay, so yeah, so from so from India to and, South Carolina, and, and, that's got to be a culture shock. that absolutely. Was.
0: I was coming to be an actor, and I remember flying across from London to uh to, to LaGuardia, uh, and uh, the international flight showed movies, and uh, they showed w. W. Dixie and the Dance Kings, I believe. And it was, you know, it was a very heavy Southern dialect. And I, if I caught every third word, I was lucky. And, and I started to go into a panic attack. I thought, oh my God, I'm, I'm coming to America to be an actor. And I don't even speak the language. <laughs> you know, I can't understand what anyone's saying. <laughs> uh it was, uh, and I, 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 I'll go on because it 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 didn't stop there. <laughs> um, I had a really harrowing trip. I flew into LaGuardia. I forget whether it was Eastern or Delta, one of those airlines that I was booked on for the remainder of the, the last leg of my journey. Um, was on strike, and so they put me on to the other flight. Oh, right. I, uh, um, let, me, let me take this back. I wasn't flying into LaGuardia. I was flying to JFK, and I had to transfer to LaGuardia because Eastern or Delta was on strike, and the other one was at LaGuardia. So they told me this at the last minute, and uh, and they said, you better hurry because you don't have a lot of time. And I said, well, you know, uh, I was, uh, anyway, <laughs> I was trying to make a case for them to transport me over. I didn't know where I was going or how I was going to get in there. But they were like, good luck, you know, <laughs> you've got 20 minutes to get there. And sure enough, I missed the flight. So I'm sitting at the LaGuardia airport for uh, five hours, I think it was, after flying for more than, you know, 24 Um and with the layover in London and all that stuff. So I was dog tired, And uh, and I got mugged in the bathroom. No, oh. oh, Yes, yes. Uh, so the little money that I had, which was $35, I gave over to the guy in the, in the men's room at LaGuardia Airport.
1: That's not a good way to start things off in New York.
0: <laughs> not a good way to start at all. Not a good way. So anyway, I finally made it to LaGuardia the next day uh, to, to sorry, in Charleston. And I get to my dorm at, uh, at one thirty in the morning, whatever. I, I wake up the next day and, and I'm guided to the student center to get breakfast. And as I'm walking across the parking lot, there's a gentleman uh, saying something. And, and, and it was just the two of us in this wide open parking lot. And he was waving his hand at me and, and, and saying something. And, I, and he was wearing a jacket. Now, <clears throat> where I grew up, if you wore a jacket, you, it was a sign of respectability, you know, not something to be afraid of or anything like that. And, um, I stood my ground and I he was trying to understand what he was saying. And he was saying something like, let me claw, let me acquire. And So uh, he's speaking French. That's right. This is like, yeah, there was that French influence, and New Orleans, and so maybe Charleston as well. And I'm trying to figure this out, and, and I'm speaking little French that I knew to say, I don't know how to speak French. <laughs> and, and he had his hand out, and I and I shook it. See, and he shook his hand loose. And yelled and he said, "Lend me a quarter." <laughs>
1: Welcome to America.
0: Uh, so, so, here I was, you know, with with dreams of Broadway and <laughs> severely stepped on with <laughs> with the understanding that I did I was not speaking the same language at all. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you eventually did make it to Broadway. You made it to New York, and you did some off-Broadway work as well. Uh, you were in productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, The King and I. Uh, but I wanted to ask you specifically about working on a show called uh, Tis a Pity, She's a Whore at the Public Theater. And you, oh. and you were there with Val Kilmer, right? Yes,
0: I was. Yes, I was.
1: What do you yeah. remember about uh, working with Val Kilmer back then? When was this? It, uh, that was nineteen 1990- ninety
0: i believe i'd already moved i just moved to la and i came back to do that show because we'd actually done it um i'd worked with the director joanne Acolytis, on a number of shows she was is i'm sorry but um she's um just a wonderful, wonderful woman. Started uh, Mabu Minds, which is this experimental avant-garde theater in New York City back in the '60s. You know, so I mean, this is someone who had started this movement and just oh, opened my eyes to theater, and I, I can't say enough about her. But uh, nevertheless, um, she was remounting this. We'd done it at the Goodman in, in Chicago, and it's a just received great accolades and reviews. So we were remounting it in New York with uh, Triple Horn, uh, Jared Harris, uh, Wendell Pierce, uh, I could go on and on, A Rock of Sisto. I mean, just just this wonderful, wonderful cast. And um, it, it was just, just I, and I shared a dressing room with Val.
1: Oh, ah, that must be interesting.
0: It was just a supremely talented, such a, you know, gifted, gifted actor. And, and, and I always felt like I think a lot of it was because, and, and this isn't just me, you know, my sort of um, uneducated opinion here, but I felt like he, he had a tortured soul. And and that's where he got a lot of his that wealth of emotionality, um, and and was able to cap that emotion. You know, um, I'm getting a little technical here, but I I I just found him a fascinating actor to watch and to you can't really emulate someone like that because it's so unique and it's so what what he's bringing. To the stage is very pure you know and to try to emulate that I, I feel just to just be you know uh, in the sky and you, you can emulate someone who's doing a dance <laughs> you know <laughs> maybe uh, or, or singing a song if you're that talented but but to to make the choices and and to have that wealth of, of emotionality is the only word i can come up with at this stage
1: Mm, yeah yeah very versatile versatile. actor
0: versatile and deep deep root. yeah 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 great great experience and uh i I remember it fondly
1: so i want to actually go back in time for a second and talk about one of your earliest films Uh, it It might actually have been uh maybe your first film in america actually it's from 1984 And uh, it's this very bizarre and I think almost forgotten movie now called Nothing Lasts Forever. And uh, that starred Zach Galligan, Bill Murray, Imogene Coca, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Fisher, and Lauren Tom. Uh, You were in that as toulouse Trek, And mind you, this is also the same year that Gremlins came out with Zach. So, I mean, I guess it's easy to see why that one got buried in time versus Gremlins getting as big as it was. But, uh, you know, it's a real weird film. What What can you tell us about working on that film?
0: It is, and, and and actually, I mean, I had a a, a, a tiny, tiny part, and it was essentially a more of a sight gag than anything else. Uh, but it was so fun to do because uh, you know, while I did, I did look like him, especially with those glasses and the hat. Uh, but now, what do we do about the height? You know, and Zach up <laughs> with this idea of well, I they'd, they'd already thought it through, doing an <clears throat> over oversized portfolio. And I basically held it up, sort of in front of me, and, and just scooched down, you know. So, so it looked like I was four foot three or whatever it was, you know. Um, and uh, it 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 was a a day on the set, and uh, for a theater actor, it was. Uh, just you know, um, stars in my eyes, and just such a such an exciting experience.
1: You know? Yeah. Unfortunately, no one's going to really be able to easily see it now because it's kind of one of those uh, films that I don't even think yeah. it got released, did it? Did that yeah. even get released? I heard there was like some issues with like test screenings or it didn't test very well, and it was kind of shelved for a bit. It, no, I, I never, I never saw it.
0: No, no, that's not true. I did, I did see a portion of it. Well, why is that? And how was that? I forget now.
1: That's probably yeah. more than most of us have seen. Yeah, uh, I, I, I was
0: that's interesting. I'd like to dig it up. Actually,
1: if you ever find it, do let me know. I, I'd love to check some of that out too. Because yeah, I can't find well. anything of it. I just I looked it up. I found a trailer, and I was like, "This is crazy." I got to ask Eric about this.
0: Maybe that's what I saw. Maybe that's what I. I, I can't remember.
1: <laughs> so you've appeared in plenty of other TV shows as well, though, uh, that did make its air, unlike that film. Uh, you've been in things like Martin, Cheers, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Wings, Murphy Brown, Ellie Law, Seinfeld. I can go on and on here because you've been in tons of things, um, many of which didn't involve aliens or starships. We'll save that for a little bit. But uh the one show I want to ask you about, which is one of my favorites to ask about on Trek Untold, is Murder, She Wrote. And uh, you did an episode uh-huh. in, in 96 called Mrs. Parker's Revenge, which also had Greg yeah. Henry uh, well-known voiceover performer Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, Time Winters, and another fellow Trek alumni, Tony Todd, in it. Uh, what can you tell us about that show? And you know, I always love to hear any good Angela Lansbury stories you got. So, uh, yeah, what do you remember about that? Yeah.
0: Well, it, it, it's funny uh, because uh, Tony Todd, I have got to know, uh, and he went to school at my uh, ex-wife, went to uh, went to UConn, so known about him and met him on, on conventions and everything else. I didn't know him at the time. Time Winters and I knew each other. In fact, we did a play and we did a part time, we worked at a part time telephone sales job together in New York. So there was that connection. But Angela Lansbury, uh, and I had done a reading with her in, in New York uh, years ago. It was for Hal Prince. And it was reading of Madame Rosa. And he wanted to, he was interested in, in mounting it. And Angela uh, came in and read. Um, so I didn't really get to hang out with her at all, you know, but uh, we, uh, we, we were on the, in the same rooms <laughs> reading <laughs> from the same script together. Uh, and then uh, when I did the ship, um, she, she, was, she couldn't have been more gracious. She's just such. She's such a charm, was, Yeah, you know, charming, gracious woman. And I remember coming back and telling people, uh, you know, I tell you, the bigger they are, you know, the 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 more real they get. And, and I remember commenting on that, and I was so impressed that were just no airs, and and she was genuinely when she asked, "How are you?" She she really wanted to know, you know. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, fun. Uh, I've I, I've been very very fortunate to work with you know some of those iconic figures uh, for me at least
1: you know. Yeah, you really have. I mean, just looking at the the breadth of your career so far is so many great folks you've worked with, uh, and yeah, you've been some such big big blockbusters too. You were in Independence Day, you were in the Planet of the Apes reboot that Tim Burton made, uh, the Mummy with Brendan Fraser, Thirteenth yeah. Warrior with Antonio Banderas. I can keep rattling these things off, but I'm not going to. Or we'll be yeah. here all day. But, uh, this does kind of lead me into asking you about Stargate, uh, where you played, uh, Kasuf, uh, whose name I always say wrong. So hopefully I said it okay there. Kasuf. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I had a note for myself. I was like, it's, it said like ketchup, but I didn't read that note. Um, so you, (laughs) yeah,
3: yeah.
1: (laughs) So you were Kasuf and, uh, that was a pretty big moment for your career as well. Uh, and you got to work with side by side with Kurt Russell and James Spader. It's a gorgeous looking film. Yeah. What can you tell us about that film?
0: Um, now there again, I had worked with James on an independent movie. Uh, I think a, couple, a year or so prior to that, um, and it was a uh, completely different movie, and he was playing a completely different role. And I, as was I. Uh, anyway, we uh, when I was when my manager showed me the script and said, "Look, they are interested in you for this role." and i read it and and they said you know one of them was they described him as an 80 year old um, the elder and he essentially had i think it was basically one scripted line at the end of the day and and you know and i thought you know and i you know i'm I've been doing a lot of TV. I've been doing some films. I'm not going to do a one-line part, you know, as an 80-year-old, which, you know, uh, I was, uh, gosh, what was that? I I, I was in my 40s. And uh, my manager kind of talked me into it. He said, look, no, they they really want, they're really more interested in, in, you know, improv, seeing what you can do with this whole you know, language issue and, and all that. Um, and the more I started to think about that and, and the challenge, and then I thought about, um, you know, aging up as well, that, that, that's a good exercise. And I thought, yeah, you know, um, if, if I get it, I I would have my hands, I would have enough to get my teeth into it, you know? And I went out and I auditioned for it and uh, had a, a great time. It, it, it the audition they were seeing everyone in town for you know it was a big cast and I remember waiting for a very long time and finally they was running so far behind that basically were eating Oh, not Dean and Roland, but the the poor reader, <laughs> he was trying to get his lunch in between, you know, <laughs> all, all the, the people he had to read with.
3: Oh, wow.
0: So it was a perfect segue for me to do the candy bar scene without even introducing myself. You know, <laughs> I walked in, I didn't say hello, I didn't do anything, and I just kind of... I, it just happened that way, you know. That <laughs> I know, and uh, then I thought, well, let's go with this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we we kind of played out that candy bar scene right off the bat, and and Dean and Roland were just howling. And what was great, what made it easier for me was uh, I I spoke in Nepali. Which uh-huh. I don't speak very well, but I didn't care because they they weren't going to understand it anyway, but <laughs> I knew what I was trying to say so so that seemed that that made it much easier for for the scene to to work you know because now you've got that language barrier and and uh, all that stuff so and uh, goodness i th- that that was <laughs> uh, the turning point of my uh, Hollywood career really and, and it didn't come right away it, it took a while because when the film was released uh, I, they, it was not really embraced by the casting community per se you know it didn't give me a notch up like I would have for example another movie I did before started yeah, getting uh, is the beast mm-hmm. you now in, in, it's called the beast of war uh that was going to be our platoon it was it's an anti-war film it it was um based on uh i actually adapted from the play by bill master simone
1: and
0: um hold on sorry um it got caught up in studio politics. The head of studio, uh, Depp Putnam, got fired just a week before we wrapped and the movie completely went by the wayside. But that one, had it actually been uh, pushed, uh, you know, uh, as, as it should have been uh, and given a proper release, I think that would have given my career of an immediate jump, you know? Um, anyway, uh, we never know, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it was only after, I think, Independence Day that, you know, once Independence Day came out and the Hollywood community at that point knew Dean and Roland were a force to be reckoned with. I mean, you know, here they were with two blockbusters back to back, you know, and on a roll, they were, you know, right out the gate. I mean, they were, um, and, and that's when, you know, it, it, it did pick up for, for us, uh, for uh, us, the underlings. I say. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. I want to ask about this one scene in particular that I remember from the film, uh, and that's towards the end where it's basically you're leading uh, all the people of Abydos down this giant s- sandy slope towards all the bad guys. It's like this amazing scene. And to me, it's extra amazing because you've got an actual horde of real human extras charging down a hill with you. It, it kind of reminded me a lot of like the old Hollywood epics, like the biblical epics, the Roman Empire epics, um, which today would yeah. be, you know, all CG characters. It wouldn't be really a single human besides yourself. But back then it had to be actual humans all choreographed, going down this hill at once, doing this crazy big scene. What do you remember about that that scene being filmed? Was that, like, very chaotic?
0: I remember it vividly, almost. Yeah. Uh, it, it it First of all, just to set it up, you know, uh, the heat. It, my first week um, on the set, when we were shooting in Yuma, Arizona, and uh, it was a hundred 30, 36, you know, people were passing out, the sand, people were getting sick. But in spite of all of that, and I think perhaps because the conditions were so tough those first eight weeks that we were shooting in Yuma, uh, that we really banded together, you know, we we had no option. And and both Dean and and Roland, and and the entire, you know, camera department, everyone... Kept a sense of humor, and and it was a lot of fun, you know. Um, there was a lot of laughing on the set. You know? mm. <laughs> Came away with a mouthful of sand, but that was okay, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, to, uh, and and I remember the first my my first uh, day on the set, and I get the, uh, my call sheet was a huge day this is not the day in, in question, but uh just to give you an example of what what was called for was you know fifteen principles uh this is we're talking about russell james spader yeah, you know on and on and on uh fifteen elders thirty five sheep herders um, one hundred and fifty extras, and thirty five doom sweepers huh. <laughs> it's like, what are the dune sweepers? I don't remember (laughs) them in the script, you know? And I realized between takes they had to sweep the dunes and make them pristine with the the, uh, footsteps, you know, because you you couldn't have foot-trodden dunes (laughs) over and over again. So that was the big issue on that particular scene, right, for this. And like you say, we had 1500 extras
1: oh my god that's, that's
0: insane uh, yeah many of them were spanish speaking so we had uh oh there were six cameras set up because not only 1500 extras uh there were explosions going to happen all that so the it, we were sent up to the top of the hill and um while the, the dunes were charged with the uh, with the explosives, then, the, then swept, and the cameras were to get ready. And so, so all this took a long time, you know, and it was hot and there was no shade up there. And I could tell people were flagging, you know, and then I thought, oh, man, this is the big scene, you know, we, we've got to, we've just got to come down there, you know, with all pistons firing, you know, it can't be looking like we've been sitting out in the sun all day and tired and <laughs> you know <laughs> and so I and I and I had like a fifteen yard lead on all of them so that I could do that little bit and then they come up and, you know. Uh so uh, I started doing doing a little soft shoe routine and a strip tease you know, <laughs> just keeping I came with them sort of entertained and and that worked for about five minutes and Finally, I said, Yeah, you know, I used to be a sprinter in, in back in the day, so i could I knew I could run pretty fast uh and I said, All right, I got five dollars to anyone here who beats me to the cameras <laughs> and it, that was like so we're talking right back in the day when five dollars was well, you, you might you might get dinner somewhere with five dollars, yeah. <laughs> you know? and people perked up. And anyway, we, we finally get to that moment, and all the ads uh, had told us to run toward the camera. And then, you know, now there were six cameras. I knew which camera I was supposed to be running toward but apparently a lot of the extras didn't so when we started that charge right and people started to come down up over the hill and start to run down and slowly they started to peel away as if they were just like deserting Cossacks <laughs> because they were going to you know different cameras and what what they should have been told was go to this particular camera. Uh, And they heard camera, saw camera, and we just went to that one, you know? (laughs) So the director was yelling, cut, 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 before the explosives went off, because that would have taken another, you know, however many hours to reset that. So, but obviously we couldn't, the the hordes running down the, the, the dunes couldn't hear, cut a very, very, very long story short, I I popped my hamstring and came down. It was black and blue, and and someone went running to Devlin said, uh, "Eric popped his hamstring." You know, it like, <laughs> was big without missing a beat because he good, he'll run slower next time <laughs> because he was freaking out. He was like, "You're supposed to be eighty years old. You're flying down that dude like a thirty-year-old." You know. Uh, so in fact, if 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 you slow it down, you will see actually uh, ace bandage. At at one point, my uh, tunic sort of flies up a little bit, and you see the ace bandage around my my thigh. <laughs> I'm,
3: I'm going to look at that now. The
0: hobble was for real. <laughs> yeah, it was. Like uh, you I say, I, I remember that it it was amazing to have 1,500 people just screaming behind you, you know, and you're amped up. And, man, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know how you do that with CG. No, you know? don't
1: anymore, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So you got to continue playing uh, your character in Stargate SG-1 also. You did three episodes there, and you got to work with uh, the new crew members of SG-1, Richard Dean Anderson, Amanda Tapping, Michael Shanks, and Christopher Judge, a real stellar group of actors. Uh, How did you enjoy bringing yeah, the character yeah. back in SG-1? Did you think you were going to even come back? Well, uh, you know, what my, um, I was shooting The Mummy at the time. Right.
0: And that's a, a whole another story for another time um, With with that role. Uh, but it turned out I had, um, had I played the role I was originally slated to play in the mummy, I would not have been able to do this. But at the very last minute, I replaced Omar Sharif, who was supposed to play my role. And, uh, so then my schedule changed. I, I was up, uh, at the top and it, it was sort of bookended on the shoot. So I had this big gap in the middle. And, while I was in um, Marrakech, I get this um, emails from my manager saying, hey, would you be interested? They're looking for an Eric Avari type. <laughs> he said, I think I'm still an Eric Avari type. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was so fun. I, I, I love, like you said, great group of people, you know, uh, and Don Davis also in that group. Now the, uh the. Rest in peace, my friend. Just a great, uh, warm, welcoming group, and and uh, and Michael was so close to James, it, it was kind of freaky, you know, mm. uh, in in quality and type, and even in look, you know. Uh, um, anyway, um, I guess uh, I, I it, it it just felt very. Very, a, a very natural transition into it. The one thing that I did kind of stumble with was the dialect, because now all of a sudden I'm speaking English. Mm, yeah. Um, and I, you know, for practical purposes, because I, I can see where trying to do that in a series it would just be really, really taxing on writers, performers, everyone. You know. Um, so they decided to go with English and, and I thought, okay, well, if I've learned English, presumably from my son-in-law, who then I would emulate or try to emulate his accent, right? <laughs> <You know? laughs> because that's the only thing that I'm, you know, that's how you get an accent. Mm-hmm. Obviously there's, there's certain uh, constant shifts and changes that, that would come easier for some people or. More difficult for others, but typically that would kind of be the dialect, you know. So it was, uh, I don't know, uh, bucking tradition a little bit there, you know, because somehow um, typically you would go with a generic Middle Eastern accent, but to me that that's an issue too, you know. It's like what it's like saying, yeah, just do a generic American accent or yeah whatever you know yeah. there's still traces of whatever yeah. <laughs> so that, that that was to me was the only um, thing that didn't feel absolutely like a continuation of the you know?
2: Trek Untold will return momentarily Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed trek-inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the Movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 forward from The Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch-enemy of Wharf, Barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand-painted in the USA, with new items added all the time while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before.
4: Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live, and that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17, going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States with a 5-year survival rate that's just 10% and more than 60,000 Americans are estimated to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021 more than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect that's why i'm supporting the pancreatic cancer action network the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PANCAN is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PANCAN drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive you can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org thanks for your time
2: we now return to trek untold
1: so eric let us now come to your first ever star trek appearance and that was in the next generation two-parter You were in the first part of this one, and that's Unification from Season 5. And you played Bajik, who was a Klingon who the Enterprise contacts for some help to get across the neutral zone. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, how you got cast for this role? Uh, Were you aware that you were going to be playing a Klingon?
0: When I came to Hollywood, I thought I could see myself fitting into that, you know, the the sci-fi genre. Heavy makeup. I know that they they typically like uh, classically trained actors. You know, so I felt like that's going to be my foot in the door. Um, and, uh, I did see myself playing, you know, back then there, there was no Indian community per se, um, other than perhaps you're a seven 11 guy, you know, and they were actually from Bangladesh, but <laughs> that's the size point. Um, I did see myself going in and, and, uh, journey, Lowry, the casting director took shine to me and she would call me in for multiple shows in different, different roles. And uh, and I, I kept running into issue after issue. One was, uh, there was one I went out for uh, that required the full contact lens thing. And uh, it was for uh, an 18 episode, uh, role and I just could not get. And I told them up front I said, Look, I don't wear contacts, I am squeamish about my eyes, so I'm really not, you know, I've got to let you know up front that uh, I I may not be able to do this. And so I'll go ahead and read. And anyway, and I, I read and they said, Go down, air makeup is waiting for you, and, and they'll try to put it in let's see how that goes and I said, oh, they're very gentle when they were they were very gentle but i was just way too squeamish and the, the lenses were so you know the, the full lens hard lenses and even when, when i finally did get it in one i basically couldn't even open my eye without, without just screaming tears and you know um uh, so i gave it my all but i, I couldn't do it um so then they finally called me back for this, and I and I got it, and I was thrilled because I was finally going to meet the, this cast and all this stuff, you know. And I get there, uh, um, was in the makeup chair for three and a half hours. Mm and uh and they said uh okay they're ready for you on set and i was like great oh and something the was they didn't have boots my size but apparently i was the shortest cling on they'd ever hired <laughs> and uh, so they had like size 13s and they said well no one's going to see it anyway but we'll we'll put them on just so you have the tops at least you know that they'll, they might see the tops." and i clumped in there and uh the set was there and i and they said, okay, they are all at breakfast and getting makeup. So uh, we'll just do it with the uh, first <laughs> <We'll> Read. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do you mean I'm not going to meet anyone? Aww. Actually, on the set, I think we did two takes. And they were like, great, that was wonderful. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take my makeup off than
1: <laughs> actually do it. See, I would have left makeup on <laughs> just to walk around like that.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: right. So you basically spent like three and a half hours doing makeup for essentially a 10-minute scene. That's right. Wow. That's right. That's the Star Trek experience, right? That was my first Star Trek experience, yes. So you returned then to Star Trek for Deep Space Nine, the season three episode Destiny, and you had a much meteor role this time around. You were Vedic Yarka, who is this wonderfully condescending Bajoran priest who was recently defrocked, who believes that there's a prophecy that's going to come true if... Cisco Helps the Cardassians on a Certain Scientific Endeavor. Uh, and this episode is about biases and interpretation of facts and information, a, relevant, a, a topic that's very relevant today still. Uh, did the story resonate with you in any way when you first read the script?
0: Yeah, and, you know, that one um, came at a time when I was in negotiations to do a uh, an episode—well, uh, do a, um, a TV series— um, and we were having a hard time with you know um, all this stuff. And I got this script, and I thought, oh, this is going it, it, you know, started uh, the, um, the show hadn't aired yet. And when I read the script and the concept and all that, I thought, oh my goodness me, this is this is going to be huge. I just loved it. I loved the concept, and I just really wanted to be a part of such a great character, you know and, and 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 so it to me it was so typically star trek the, like the old star trek you know um in 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 terms of how they are getting their message across and i i i i loved i jumped at that
1: opportunity so how was the makeup process different because this time around you know you don't have the giant klingon forehead but you still have the bajoran nose piece and the bajoran priest outfit uh, the vedic outfit so how was the makeup process different
0: Yes, I I loved it. I, I loved the the costume, and I love the earring. Uh, and the nose was so easy, you know. Uh, that that was uh, that was an easy one. <laughs> now
1: you That's got to applied. share. You got to spend a lot of time in this episode with Avery Brooks and Nana Visitor. Uh, just tell me a little bit about working with those two. You know, I, I love those two. They have such great chemistry together, and I've heard great things about roles with them.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I remember about that it, it was Nana was so both of them actually they were just so professional. We covered a lot of material. I remember being quite surprised at how quickly we went through pages and pages of dialogue. So there wasn't a lot of time to, to chit chat. You know, uh, uh, a lot of it was we were going, um, and and it was very smooth. Very, very professional, shall we say? You know, we would we were pulling close on sixteen-hour days, and uh, long days, and and, uh, and I was I really got gave me a sense of how difficult this job can be for someone who's doing this week after week after week. You know, uh, pulling that kind of load. Um, it's uh,
1: so how did you approach this role of Vedic Yarka? Did you call on some real life experience from your time about going to school with Jesuits priests uh, or was it was there something else like how did you create the role of Vedic Yarka and make it interesting for yourself?
0: I I I think a lot yes I think the Jesuits perhaps had a lot to do with it. I'd also played you know a lot of priests uh, and Friar Lawrence for one, you know in Romeo and Juliet and so uh, there's a priest you know when when you're when you're a character man, bald priests and doctors uh, are really good ones. <laughs> you, know, you get to play a lot of those. Um, so th- that that part of it was was easy. And really, you know, me, honestly, I mean, honestly, I I find that the preparation for a role so much. It's 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 exploration, you know. Uh, A director once, if I can, I think, on my own horn here, um, a director once (laughs) said, you know, you're like a, you're like a curator. You go and you brush away all the sand from around the roll, and then we see the skeleton, and then you add from there. And I thought, oh, what a nice, <laughs> nice description of my work method. You know, <laughs> I, I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, but I think that does kind of say what what um, what you want to do with a role is strip away and get to the root. What is at the bottom of this? And here's a man, if I can remember, you know, the 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 plot correctly, but he believed, sincerely believed he was seeing all the signs of uh, what was going to come, and it was on him to convince the rest of the the starch, you know, the the fleet to heed his warning. Yep. Or... It could come to catastrophic ends, you know. So it's very easy to to now put yourself in a position where it's easy to grasp that it, it doesn't take, you know, in realistic terms how you want to get your point across, and then not getting it, and then and then to look them in the eye and get your point across, no matter what it takes, you know. And and just think about that uh, actions and objectives, you know. Um, So a lot of my work uh, as preparation is stuff that I would do and then throw out once I get to the set and I'm looking the actors in the eye. Um, I, I, if I may give you a, a very vivid example of this, and going back to the Beast, that <laughs> the movie that I'm determined to plug.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Check out the Beast of War today. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> But th- th- I remember when I auditioned for that, uh, there was a moment when I, spoiler alert, uh, confront uh, George Zunzo, wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, and I played it one way when I was at the audition and when I was actually looking him in the eye, uh, uh, it was a whole different take and s- so much better, you know, because... All that bravado that I could show at an audition when I'm just looking at you know no one basically on the other end uh, it's easy to conjure up but when you're actually looking at someone in the eye you know eyeball to eyeball and you put yourself in that position in the scene and and, and you know that you could lose your life now now go ahead and say the line. No. no does that make any,
1: any yeah. sense, and yeah, it's a good way to put it, so this episode that you did was directed by Les Lando, and oddly enough, he was also the director who would have directed your t n g appearance, but again, we already heard about what happened there. but uh, what do you remember yeah, about yeah. working with Les? Was this your first time working with him? Yes, yes, it was
0: and I, and I really enjoyed it, and um uh what we, we did actually get to hang out a little bit. Um, and I can't remember anything specific other than really enjoying working with him. Uh, he was very gentle and, and, and he was uh, very appreciative. So it's, 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 you know, uh, there's no, um, it's very easy for an actor to get along with someone who's, who, who, who likes your take and, 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 uh, likes what you're doing, you know. Um, makes it very pleasant uh that's not to say i i i i like i do like being challenged though as, as uh, if a director were to come and say look uh, that's not where I want to go at all i want I want you to think about this, go there you know I said, sure uh, i i you know, I like that too but um but I just remember the the experience with less just being very very pleasant. On Enterprise, speaking of directors, I worked with LeVar Burton.
1: Yeah, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into Enterprise, in fact, now. That was your last appearance yeah. in the Star Trek franchise. You were in the episode from the first season called Terra Nova, and you played uh, yeah, Jamon, yeah. who was a descendant of some lost colonists from Earth who are now living underground, unaware that they're humans. Uh, it's a pretty interesting episode. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and that was directed by LeVar Burton. Yes, yes. and uh, the uh, Mary Carver, who
0: played my mother, was Lavar's acting teacher in uh,
1: at uh u s c
3: oh wow yeah, yeah. so and basically for, you got the
1: student it, directing the teacher now
0: yeah, right
1: right
0: it was it was wonderful and i'd worked with um uh, scott bakula on um uh, t v series uh prior to that as well I forget what it was but so so we'd worked together um, and it's 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 nice and and uh you know, that cast, uh, John Billingsley is a dear friend today, uh, as well. And, uh, Dominic Keating, I, I got along very well, and we we still sort of, uh, keep in touch. So yeah, yeah, it's a nice, uh, that, that world, the, uh, sci-fi world is, uh, attracts some wonderful people, um. And, and I and I was very lucky and privileged to be part of that world. I, I really enjoyed, um, and I also enjoyed stretching my imagination. You know,
1: yeah. All your Star Trek appearances, even in particular, they're all very different from each other. Ah,
0: uh, y- yes, yes. Well, very different roles, aren't they? Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and they all present, I imagine, different challenges to you as an actor, because you know, one day you're doing a Klingon, the next day you're doing a priest, and then you're doing um, a subterranean uh, cave dweller, basically.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that was the one I I enjoyed most, the the Terra Nova, the, the subterranean, because he. <laughs> I love the sense of humor of you know just absolutely hating these humans only to come to find out, hello, I'm human too. <laughs> <You> know, I'm <laughs> Classic Star lady. Trek. <laughs>
1: And so the makeup here, too, it's its very interesting because, uh, you know, we were talking about before the makeup. Uh, this was like something that had never been done before, right? How did the crew go about creating the the underground cave dwellers?
0: Well, they, um, I remember sitting in there uh, with Mary while they played with makeup. Um, we came in a day early, and uh, they played with this, that, and the other thing, and then finally settled on this. Yeah, that that that, that was sort of a... Like I I was alluding to earlier, the makeup was (laughs) weird. Um, And I, you know, I think not having done it before, it was, you don't know what the problems are until you actually go through a day of shooting, you know, and uh, get to refine it. And and they did. Uh, Over the course of that episode, they, sprayed it down so that it didn't run quite so much and um, kept its form. It's like that. Kept the color. I remember the colors uh, were difficult to maintain.
1: So having been on three different Star Trek shows, three different franchises, uh, what can you tell us about the differences between the environments on each of those sets?
0: They were all, uh, I remember... uh, I think uh, the upstairs on all those sets being consistent had a lot to do with the consistency that I felt on all three sets. That there was a a, a very very strong attention to uh, to the script. You know, you do not deviate, um, not not punctuation or or letters. You know. and, uh, obviously you, you, there is a sense of tradition On and I think enterprise less so because it hadn't yet been established in terms of tradition, in terms of the, uh, the, the framework of the story, the, the world that they're inhabiting, you know, uh, that was a little looser than, uh, deep space nine and uh, next generation where I thought that there were, and not being a, a, a diehard Trekkie, I, I I wasn't qu- quite sure uh, of my footing sometimes. You know, uh, pronunciation of something or whatever. You know, or what what is that alluding to? You know, um, and uh, sometimes you don't want to ask because you don't want to sound foolish, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> sometimes you just have to. Um, but Enterprise, there was less less of that uh, because, it, like I say, they were still discovering and and creating that world, which was closer to our time, so yeah. it was easier, you know. Yeah.
1: So after Enterprise, did you audition for any roles in any other Star Trek shows?
0: No, that was it. I done, and they uh, said I never auditioned for Voyager, so that was it.
1: Uh, see, that would have been fun to have you on Voyager, too. That's unfortunate.
0: Uh, wasn't there something about Voyager that you could, if you had done one, you couldn't do the other,
1: that you were you would be on
0: the mm-hmm. wrong side? I don't know. That- uh,
1: from what I've heard, um, basically, if you're an alien, you can get recast into different shows, but the minute you show your human face, basically, that's when they don't want to deal yeah. with you again. <laughs> yeah,
0: yep. Yeah. And, and I know with Next Generation, uh, there was a consideration that I... I was a little too close to uh, Patrick Stewart in terms of, you know, the bald head and the timbre of my voice and something that, that that, um, I remember that being an issue on one of the roles that I went out for.
1: That's interesting because we've heard something similar with another actor. We spoke to a few episodes back, uh, Carl held who uh, he was in the original series and, he had worked a lot with Shatner. They both had similar looks. Um, and because of that, basically, when they filmed the episode where Carl and Shatner are together, most of the time, Shatner, in terms of the blocking, he's always in front of Carl Held and practically like, blocking most of his face <laughs> in a lot of those shots. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, it's, just, it's just a Hollywood thing, I guess. Uh, uh,
0: interesting. Yeah. What they say is true. You know, it has not the fact that you didn't get the part has very little to do with what you did at the audition but i know actors we tend to beat ourselves up so much you know it's like oh it's only i doing that or you know and and has nothing to do with anything
1: so outside of star trek of course you've continued to do many many things uh there's tons of things we could talk about i mean even the mummy alone i feel like that's just a whole episode for itself but uh, i want to talk to you about one of your comedy roles, and I think this is probably the one that people might remember you the most for, uh, and that was when you were in Mr. Deeds and you got to sing Ground Control to Major Tom with Adam Sandler. That must have been just a blast to work on with that crew and that cast.
0: The hardest part of that
1: show was trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> and,
0: and, 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 and actually both literally and figuratively, but, but I did have to keep a straight face in order to keep that beard on. There's a story behind that, so I just come off. Actually, I'm still on the tail end of uh, Planet of the Apes. I think yes, right. When they were, when they were when they cast me, we were just wrapping Planet of the Apes, where I had I was shaved completely, right. And they said um, we really want to use him in this role, uh, and um, we want his beard to be out as as bushy as, as possible. And, uh, I, I said, well, I'll, I'll do my best, <laughs> but you know, well, there's only so much I can do. Uh, and there wasn't enough time for, them, for me to really grow it up. Well, so that's the most difficult part to add on. So I have these huge bushy mutton chops with the chin shave yep. and every day next up, we, we put that on. Um, so it, <laughs> eating and excessive laughing were not allowed <laughs> for me. But it, yeah, it, it, that, that was such a blast. I, uh, and, and I mean, we, we got to do just such cool stuff. Like we shot hoops, in Madison square garden one day. Yeah. You know? uh, um, oh, I, I, yeah. John Turturro, um, Peter Gallagher. Great, great cast, you know, uh, fun. And Adam is just, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, I just, um, he, you know, he what? I, the, he's just a good guy, you know. He's he he genuinely he, he's he's very empathetic. I think that I think that and I think that's what what I like about his acting and and being with him is uh, I I tell you a little story when they were was uh, in my trailer, and uh Malcolm's doing the... Adam goes, Anderson, <laughs> go in, get your ass out of here, and he walks around, and go, where are we going? Just come with me, and we go into his trailer, and and there are a bunch of kids, uh, teenagers, and clearly, they were all cancer patients, um, and it was from Make-A-Wish Foundation. Ah. And, uh, you know, um, you know m- most of them were bald, you know. And as he walks in, he goes, Hey, Baldy! They just sort of, it's a moment of kind of horror, you know. He goes, <laughs> I want you to meet my other Baldy friend here. <laughs> and he points to me, you know. <laughs> and he just, and, and you know, he, he, um he He's so good with people that he yeah I don't know. I just love that man. I love him. He's got a great heart, and he's funny. I think he's hysterical.
1: And I would be remiss today if we didn't talk about this one other comedic role that you had a little bit earlier before that role, uh, and that was in Encino Man. I think this might be like one of your most quotable lines, maybe. You know I'm going with this already. Uh, Wheezing the Juice. What can you tell us about Wheezing the Juice with Brendan Fraser and Pauly Shore?
0: You know, uh, I was going to ask you not to bring it up, and then I thought, because I've fought that stereotype for all my career. Mm
3: -hmm. Ever
0: since I was I can remember, um, and uh, and I, I went out for that. Uh, I was very early in my uh, when I just come to L.A. and I was I'd start doing some TV work and I kept bugging my agents to get me out on films. I I, I yeah you know, I think my forte is film rather than TV. And uh, she so said, okay, here's you know there's a casting director. She casts a lot. Um, she cast a lot of film. Uh, they're looking for, you know, this Indian 7-Eleven guy. And I was like, no, a fan. And they were like, no, no, wait. They're, they want someone with an impo- improv background and all this. And and I did have a strong improv background. So I, I said, okay, and you said, just go show your face. You know, you, you probably won't get it because as far as his words, he said, you don't look Indian enough. You know, they'll probably get, you know, anyway. So I said, okay, I'll, i go out and do this. And and I went in and had lived and I, and I did the dialect and everything. And I was spoofing it really, you know? Um, and the more they laughed, the broader I got and, you know, um, and then I got the offer and, and, and I remember my reaction was, Oh shit. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Should I, I can't do that. Um, and they're like, mm, you know, now what am I gonna say at that point, you know? But I thought about it a lot. And I I really regretted doing that. Um and I've I thought about that too. I've been confronted with this a lot, okay. Uh is is something funny only because of the accent? If in other words, if you take that accent away and do exactly what everything else is it still funny very true and when I was defending myself, I would say what actually got the laugh was not the accent, but it was this man who clearly doesn't speak uh, Encino speak a <laughs> poly Shore speak you know uh does the you ooze that was. Actually, what made it funny that he wasn't, you know, that he was really angry and just repeats exactly what he heard, you know? Yeah. No. You you know
1: what I mean? Yeah. As I was doing this interview too, I was thinking to myself whether or not I actually did want to ask you that question about that because it is a super negative stereotype. And, you know, looking through your career and even watching you on TV, as I've seen you through different shows, you know, so many times you're playing these stereotypical characters. I know it's got to be tough, especially for you. Um, so, you know, my question to you is, how do you balance an accurate portrayal of a human being versus a negative portrayal of a stereotype?
0: Yeah, uh, like I, I with with comedy, I'd say that is one, you know, uh, that 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 to me is the yardstick. And I had to think about this a, a lot because I was confronted with it a lot. Yeah. Um, and I did the same thing on Martin. Now, the thing about it is this guy is a 7-Eleven clerk. A lot of the clerks that I saw at Seven Elevens did have very broad accents. You know, now how am I going to play that and realistically and and come across sounding like a foreign diplomat instead of a Seven Eleven clerk? You know what I mean? Yeah. So you have to be realistic on on the one hand. Um, secondly, you know, I was one of three well there were, there were literally three indian actors in hollywood of my age that you know we 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 didn't have the opportunities that we see today on tv with you know indian doctors indian roles and you know indian lawyers young kids s- speaking without dialects you know the, the first generation of indians it was that the immigrant indians there were no roles being written. Tons of roles as terrorist kind of guys, which I—that's where I drew the line in the sand, mm. you know. And and it's again picking your battles, because if you, as an actor um, of, of my ilk, you know, a, a character actor, not a name draw, you you can't be laying down, you know, the law and saying no, I won't play that, and I won't play this, and I won't play that. Uh, although I tried, you know, I, there was a time when I I actually pulled out of a show, uh, of a shoot, during the shoot, because they changed the script, and uh, and and it suddenly became very offensive to me, and and I had to bow out. It was a very very difficult moment in my career.
1: I mean, I feel like things have started to change, but I mean, you're going to be the better judge of that. I mean, do you think that things have gotten better in at least the past decade?
0: Infinitely. Infinitely, and I think they got worse because in, in in my early days there were no real Indian roles, you know. Uh, but then when the when those when I say Indian, I'm talking let let's say ethnic roles, okay? Because I, I played a variety of those ethnic characters. I wasn't confined to Indian.
1: Yeah, we could say um, like South Asian or Middle Eastern uh, types characters, I guess.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so among those know, 24, that show, uh, I, I turned that one down, I, I don't know, a number of times, um, until they stopped calling me. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, then I, I started to become known as being difficult or, you know, who does he think he is? Uh, I had someone's, um, I, whatever, you know, but I, I just, I, I, I when I didn't agree with the, the morality of what we were portraying and how we were depicting a uh, type of people um a whole oh, race, you know, not just 7-Eleven clerks. I don't mean to denigrate 7-Eleven clerks, but, you know, when it's that specific, you know, uh, okay, you you can be a little stereotypical, but when you're talking about whole oh, race of people, mm-mm, you know, that's uh, just pushing it. To you know that that's racism. Yeah, that's, that's
2: you know uh, bigotry.
1: And it's it's not surprising to me to hear that. Like you'd be defending yourself, and then you'd be labeled as being a troublemaker in Hollywood. Uh, it's unfortunate that's what you had to deal with. But I'm you glad know, that you Hollywood did. I'm glad that you were able to defend yourself and endure. huge to hearing no. You
0: know, uh, they 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 at first they think it's a negotiation tactic, and then when they realize it's not, then then they get mad. And it's not good to anger Hollywood, <laughs> you're a little guy. But, you know, I I, uh, I don't mean to denigrate Hollywood. It's given me um, a wonderful life, and I have very very much to be thankful for. And I'm enjoying that right now as I'm looking out over this uh, beautiful landscape in Portland.
1: So let's talk about something else you're working on these days, one of your more current projects. You're working on a documentary now called The Milk of Human Kindness. This is a crowdsourced documentary. It's very interesting. Uh, Can you tell our listeners today what this doc is all about? In a
0: word, kindness. But uh, it sounds like such a simplistic thing, um, a simple concept. And my, my hope was to... Light on the subject and show just how elusive it actually is. No matter who you ask, you know. Oh, I mean, I think with the odd exception, someone said, "No, no, no, I, I don't believe in kindness." But everyone, you know, yeah, yeah, I believe in kindness. I'm all about kindness. Yeah. And I had one person go, "Oh yeah, I, I'm, I'm all about kindness." You know, all lives matter, <laughs> and that to me just Comes it up. You know, <laughs> as he was saying, all lives matter. It's like, how much more unkind could you be? You know, as you are saying. So that's, uh, I guess, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to do. Uh, to be honest, it is not going well. And I'm struggling with it because I'm, I'm able to scratch the surface with the crowdsourcing method that I was hoping to
1: do. And when we say crowdsourcing, can you actually explain to our listeners uh, what, what we're doing with crowdsourcing?
0: Yes, it's not crowdfunding, not to be confused with crowdfunding at all. Uh, by source, I mean, uh, I'm asking you for your input, your, your submission, your video submission. Um, and I, w- I had three basic, and I wanted to get, you know, everyone's story. It started out, I was actually doing it uh, when I left Hollywood in uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was in an, I toured the United States in my RV, and I was actually meeting people and interviewing people as as I went along. And uh, then I, I, my health issues uh, took over and I had to get surgery, so that, put an end to that and then I I didn't want to let it go uh, so I came up with this idea about crowdsourcing but if I can't go to the mountain the mountain must come to me you know? yeah, that's a smart way to uh, do it yeah I think what I'm lacking there is the probative value of an interview you know is to get beyond the scripted response um, and get something that's and more challenging than three basic questions about kindness, so I'm still you know um, I'm still um struggling with that and I, but i'm not um, not letting go. Um, I have in fact uh, bridged one big obstacle uh on my facebook i was I've, I've always stayed away from religion and politics. But um, I, not a long story, but I ended up doing a series after I'd left Hollywood um, on on Jesus, the life of Jesus. And I played Nicodemus.
1: Yeah, that's the uh, Chosen, right? Yes, yes.
0: And that's become a very, uh, very, very strong sort of following among the uh, evangelical community. And it's... uh, Trying to sort of put me and now now my fan base is sort of split, if you will, you know. Uh a lot of many of the, 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 the chosen fan base only know me from the chosen. <laughs>
3: um,
0: and uh and they're very, you know, they're they're much more dogged about this than um uh, than the sci-fi fan base. You know? uh, yeah, and so I, to, to, to talk about politics and what's going on uh, is, is disturbing to a lot of them, but I've decided I, you know, I'm not going to pull my punches just because I played a role.
1: You know? Yeah. Well, I, I found that most uh, folks in the Star Trek fandom and the Star Trek community have been, Besides being fairly progressive, uh, you know, I think they're very receptive. This might be a great thing for a lot of Star Trek fans to to hear about and possibly submit to your doc. How can our listeners be part of this documentary?
0: Yes. The easiest way is if you go to my uh, Facebook page, there's, there's a link up there, uh, and, and you just click on the link. You get all the details, and it's, it's really simple. Essentially, what, what uh, it would take is a cell phone or um, uh, your tablet or whatever and just record yourself. But I'm, I I want to revamp those questions because I don't think that I think the onus is on me. You know, I've got to fix that in order to get a better response out of people and to get to the heart of what they really believe. Does that make sense?
1: yeah i mean that's kind of the challenge of documentary filmmaking you know, that's what i do outside of this right here uh and it's an it's an yep, evolving process yep. you kind of have to learn as you go and it's not really up to you what the documentary is going to be about or how it's going to happen it's kind of up to the documentary right. to do itself
0: yes yes but but to get to the part of the issue is kind of up to the documentarian isn't it to yes. to poke and to prod and to to follow leads uh, or whatever. Ask you know? the uncomfortable questions. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And pick up on, on things that you hear at the moment and say, well, what do you mean by that? Or how do you feel about this? You just said that. So, you know, uh, not that we're trying to trip them up, but we're trying to get to the the real meat of the issue. Um, yeah, I think that's what to so mean what, when they say uh,
1: they're looking for the truth. Yes. And that is what, you know,
0: I was talking to someone about acting, and I said, uh, it's the truth. You, you have to look for the truth. And they said, what, what do you mean? Because it's all a lie anyway. I was like, yes. Sir. Once you get past that lie, then it has to be the absolute truth. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you have to get beyond the lie that you're not really that person. <laughs> but after that, you must tell the truth. I, I thought about someone um, and said, that woman doesn't know how to lie on or off stage. Mm.
3: So,
0: and that to me, is a supreme compliment. And I love working with, and I love being with people who can't lie. <laughs>
1: you know. So for any of our listeners who want to submit, you could check out Eric's social media pages or go to com, and all the information is going to be there so that you can submit and be part of this doc. Thank you so much for doing that, Matthew. You did it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot of practice with that kind of stuff. Yes, you do. So, Eric, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe?
0: Mm, uh, we're, well, we're the fan base, right? I would say so. I love, I love going to the conventions. Um, it's really a, become a very enjoyable sometimes. Exhausting because I just love talking to the fans, you know, you meet all kinds of people from all walks of life, but the common thread is their, their imaginations are well developed, shall we say, um, open, uh, receptive. And that tells you something about the mind of those people. And those people, I hate to say that, but you know, um, the fan base. I find it true that I don't come across a lot of close-minded people. And I find you know, a lot of um, um, disabled in one way or another that, you know, people who have been unable to, you know, for some physical disability, that they've been confined to home and watching TV and, and, and have just, been sucked into the sci fi world, you know. And that 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 is such a um, wonderful gift, isn't it? And, yeah. and and it's something that that I as an actor I take very and that's why I say truth. You know, you owe the fans that. You owe them that. Tell the truth when you're up there. As much as, you know, coming back to the beast, as much as I would like to have Been all bravado and, you know, (laughs) matinee idol, uh, I was not, you know, that would have been a lie.
1: Well, you know, just, it kind of reminds me of that famous quote from Captain Picard on Star Trek Next Generation, where he says the first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth. So I think that's why it's so ingrained in Trekkies.
0: Interesting. I think that should be uh, the mantra here in America. (laughs) If only the truth,
1: man. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being so incredibly generous with your time today, all of your stories, all your insight and your experiences. Uh, we had a lot of fun chatting today. I hope you did, too. my
0: pleasure. Thank you.
1: And for folks, once again, who want to check out the documentary that you're working on, The Milk of Human Kindness, head to stubatoproductions.com. All the information is going to be there. It's a real great doc, so I wish you much success with that. And again, thank you so much. I, I could definitely see your passion for the fans here, and uh, I look forward to hopefully meeting you one day at a convention post coronavirus
2: absolutely Uh, thank you
1: so much eric appreciate your time it was my pleasure thank you that's it for this week's episode of trek untold and thank you for checking it out one more time if you're not following us on social media please do so by checking us out on twitter facebook and instagram at trek untold that's all one word no spaces on any of those platforms if you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash today, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek and Told, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold.
2: Trek Untold is sponsored by treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms. Is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.